This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we're celebrating Colorado Day with a look back at some of the people who have helped shape the Centennial State. They would ask Barney to go to Washington, D.C. to convince the uh, national legislature to not grant Colorado statehood until it did grant the Black vote. That story and much more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. On August 1st, 1876, President Ulysses S. Grant made Colorado a state. And the road to statehood wasn't always smooth. Some members of Congress argued against admitting the territory, accusing the inhabitants, especially miners, of being a roving and unsettling horde of adventurers. But eventually, statehood advocates won their case, and Colorado was admitted as the 38th state in the Union. When many of us think of the West, we think of cowboys. And while you probably already know that cowboys played a crucial role in settling the West and establishing Western American culture, you might not know that as many as one in three cowboys were black. We wanted to learn more about the role and contributions black cowboys had in shaping Colorado even before it became a state. So we reached out to Elise Clark, a historian who volunteers at the Black American West Museum in Denver. Colorado Edition's Tess Novotny takes it from here. To be honest, I don't actually know what the term cowboy means or where it came from. Can you explain? Cowboy refers to herdsmen. And herdsmen have existed, as we know, for thousands of years. And the name cowboy was first seen in print by Jonathan Swift in the 1700s. I laugh and we tease that the Western cowboy was a separate word, cowboy. We now use it as a compound word, but I always laugh and say, you know the cowboys were black because they called them boy. But cowboys are people who are herdsmen. Their whole job is to take care of of the cattle and the horses. What drew so many black people to becoming cowboys? When they were enslaved, that was part of their job was to take care of the animals, the horses, some of your earliest trainers, of thoroughbreds and other horses were people of African descent. They come from an actual horse culture in Africa. And so it was a natural transition for them to go from their enslaved job to their free job, which gave them more opportunity to see things. And they had a freedom on the, on the uh, open plain that you couldn't get picking cotton on a plantation. One of the main things cowboys did in the late 1800s was organize cattle drives. This is where cowboys actually walked cows thousands of miles from the south to many places across the west, including Colorado. How did black cowboys participate in these drives? You had many of these cowboys. You had people like Bill Pickett. You had Nat Love, who left Tennessee and walked to Dodge City to become a cowboy. You have other cowboys who went as far as Canada. Some were all black outfits and some were integrated outfits, but they all moved the cattle anywhere from a thousand to three or more thousand miles to get them to the railheads so they can get to market. Were black cowboys accepted at that time or did they experience discrimination? In America, discrimination is woven into the fabric of who we are. And so, yes, they did experience that. But one thing about being a cowboy that these men were able to do was to prove 
their trustworthiness, and their skill. Before they were property, now they could prove themselves as men. And I think that's the one thing about the West. Survival was the most important piece in the West. You could die quickly for no food, no water. Racism didn't really fit well with surviving. If someone was Black and they had a cup of water, if you were really that prejudiced that you wouldn't drink from their cup, then you would you know, be white bones on the, on the plains. After the railroad was invented at the turn of the 20th century, there was no longer a need for cattle drives. People could just ship their cows out west or wherever they needed on the train. How did life for black cowboys change at that time? There are still small cattle drives, and you don't see them, no. On the level that they were in the 1800s, no, you don't see it like that. But people still have to move their cattle. But how it's changed is that now... Our horse cultures are smaller. 70 years ago, we were a much more rural country. More people lived on farms. And as people moved to the city, that land was lost. And that land is lost that we can't get back now. Elise Clark is a historian who volunteers at the Black American West Museum. Elise, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Colorado is known as the Centennial State because it was admitted to the Union in 1876, 100 years after the birth of America. But what many might not know is that Colorado almost didn't get to claim that historic designation. The territory first applied for statehood in 1865, but one Coloradan, a man by the name of Barney L. Ford, prevented Colorado from gaining statehood for another 11 years. Ford, a former slave and successful Denver businessman, actually went to Washington and lobbied that Colorado not become a state until African Americans received the right to vote. And he was successful. Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber has more. Throughout his life, Barney Ford was a barber, restaurateur, hotel manager, civil rights pioneer, and all-around entrepreneur. In the 1870s, he was known as the Black Baron of Colorado, being the 14th wealthiest man in the territory. But back in 1822, he was born into slavery in Stafford, Virginia. I might uh, point out that he was the offspring of a slave woman and her slave owner. Steve Shepard is a former board member and volunteer at the Black American West Museum in Denver, who has researched and reenacted Barney Ford. The breakthrough in Barney's learning came after the mistress of that plantation sold Barney to a very, very learned person and would constantly read Shakespeare and, and other upscale documents. And Barney would listen and learn the diction, and he also learned to read. By the time Barney was about 18, he was leased out to a showboat. There, he met someone who would change the course of his life. While he was on that ship, he befriended one of the actors, and that actor was part of the abolitionist movement. He promised Barney that he would help him to escape slavery. So one day, the actor helped Barney to dress up as a slightly built white woman and helped him to escape that boat. He followed the North Star as most escaped slaves did and made his way to Chicago. And while he was in Chicago, Barney helped other former slaves escape to freedom. 
In fact, he would transport slaves from Chicago to the Canadian border for their freedom. Barney did have to be very careful as he did this because, once again, he was an escaped fugitive slave. At this time, Barney was also working at a barber shop where he heard talk of the Western gold rush. And he decided that he and his new wife, Julia, should be a part of it. So, after a brief stint running a hotel and restaurant in Nicaragua that the U.S. later bombed during tensions over land ownership, he finally made his way to Colorado by mule train. He had no idea what a mule skinner was, but he booked himself on one of the mule trains and eventually learned that trade and made his way to Colorado. Barney came to Colorado for gold, but after he was swindled out of a claim to a gold mine by an attorney, he moved to Denver and started a restaurant, until a massive fire in 1863 burned it down. And in order to rebuild, he would need a loan. He decided that he would apply to a Mr. Kuntz at the future Colorado State Bank for $1,000. Mr. Kuntz told him that since he was an honest man, that he had developed a strong reputation as a businessman in Denver, that he would loan him $9,000. Barney was pretty apprehensive about taking that $9,000 since he had been swindled and chased off his gold mines and so on. He would go ahead and take that, but he needed to pay it back just as soon as he could. Well, he paid it back in record time in nine months. And that's how I developed such a strong reputation as a businessman in the Denver area. The restaurant was incredibly successful, and Barney made a ton of money. But he was frustrated that Colorado lawmakers still refused to grant African Americans the right to vote. So he and Julia went back to Chicago to get their thoughts together. While they were in Chicago, a group of businessmen and Black politicians and activists decided that they would ask Barney to go to Washington, D.C., to convince the uh, national legislature to not grant Colorado statehood until it did grant the Black vote. Well, that was a successful move because Colorado, even though they were applying for statehood in 1865, it was not granted because of that reason. Colorado didn't become a state until 1876, and by then, the 15th Amendment, which granted African Americans the right to vote, had already been ratified. And he was very, very pleased with that. In fact, he decided to come back to Colorado because he knew that he could be very effective in the political area. Barney eventually ran for state legislature, but lost to a white Southerner, who argued that Barney shouldn't be elected not because he was Black, but because he was kind of a rich show-off. That really depressed Barney for some time. But Barney did, did stay active in politics and eventually was appointed to the Colorado Grand Jury as well as the Board of Bank Examiners. At that time, practically the only African-American who was involved in that level of politics. His racial identity didn't matter because he was providing income to those other folks who were investing in his operations. So at that time, Barney had an income which was 14th highest in the uh, Colorado area. So that's how he developed that name, the Black Baron or Mr. Barney Ford. Barney Ford was an entrepreneur through and through. 
When his hotel in Nicaragua was bombed, he started a barbershop and restaurant in Denver. When that burned down, he rebuilt it. And later, two premier hotels in Denver and Cheyenne. And somehow also found the time to build a school for the formerly enslaved. And when his hotels went under in the economic collapse of the 1870s, he started a restaurant in Breckenridge, which he operated until shortly before his death in 1892. No matter how much he earned and how much of a high-profile person he was, he still wanted to reach out and to help his fellow man. To this day, you can visit the building in Denver where Barney once operated his businesses. Although the building itself was not a stop on the Underground Railroad, Steve says that it makes sense to recognize the building as part of Underground Railroad history. The impact of the Underground Railroad on Barney Ford's life is the reason that that building at 1514 Blake Street has been noted as being related because it meant so much to Barney Ford. Not only did it help him to escape slavery, but he spent so much of his time and his life helping to further the Black population through the Underground Railroad. The story of Barney Ford is just one of the amazing journeys of the formerly enslaved. And with Juneteenth now recognized as a national holiday, Steve is hopeful that more stories like Barney's will come to light. Just this past two weeks, I was able to travel to Tulsa, Oklahoma for the commemoration of the Tulsa massacre. And one of the outstanding points of that was that I have friends who are in their 70s who grew up 30 miles away from Tulsa and had never heard of that. Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And those who do not remember their past are condemned to repeat their mistakes. That's the reason that we study history and that we study lives like Barney Ford. That was Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber speaking with Barney Ford reenactor Steve Shepard. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. One aspect of Colorado life that continually attracts people from all over the world is skiing. So ahead of Colorado Day, we're going to take a moment to celebrate someone who works behind the scenes to help make sure that skiers and snowboarders get down the mountain safely. James Nee Hughes is the artist behind the trail maps that you find at ski resorts like Breck, Vale, and Winter Park, along with many others. In 2019, Nee Hughes was chosen for induction into the Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. KUNC's Aaron O'Toole visited Nehues in his studio that year to talk about his process for designing these maps and what the work has meant to him. I never knew, and a lot of people that we have talked to as well had this same reaction, but I did not know those ski maps that you see at Ski Mountains are made by a person, you. Do you hear that a lot? Oh, yes. I, you know, I've done so many through the years that they just can't quite grasp how many I've done. So I've been doing it for 30 years, and... Um, about 200 different resorts uh, have my trail maps. Can you describe the process of making these beautiful maps? Well, the most important thing is to remember that we're making a map. So the, the most important thing is to make sure that it's clear to the skiers of how to get down the mountain. It's important to also portray it in such a manner that when they're on the mountain and they look around, they can relate to the trail map. So they can say, hey, right, I'm right here. And uh, it's something that I really try to do as the, uh, what my predecessors did. And then, of course, like them, I 
wanted to make it beautiful too. So it is very important, I think, to get into the painting of it. Today, there's quite a few computer-generated maps out there, and, and there for a while in the late 1990s and early 2000, the industry was kind of turning to computer because it was the new thing, you know, and it's going to be better, and uh, it was not. <laughs> A lot of those who return to my work, it's more natural. I'm painting the great outdoors. They're skiers that come in to enjoy the great outdoors. And the computer image is a reflection of the office. So I wanted to ask you what the history of ski maps being designed by actual people versus just computers. I mean, <laughs> what do you, where is this going? Well, since the 1960s and Hal Sheldon, they've been painted because that was the only way to do it. There was no computers in those days. Even Hal, by the end of his career, could start seeing that computers were on the horizon. He made a comment one time that we really can't let the human element get out of the map in the making of the map. Do you fly over in a plane? How do you get the imagery? Once I uh, do pick up a job, I um, get all the information I can from the ski area. Anything like their site maps, their uh, projections on what they have to uh, consider in the future and so forth. And then I'll fly the area. And I'll start very high. I, I start about 2,000 feet above the ski area and get a, good, a lot of panoramic views from different perspectives. And then I'll, uh, I'll drop the airplane down to about 500 feet above the summit and do the detail shots of those slopes and drop it even further to about mid-mountain, but uh, we'll fly down 50% down the mountain and get all the detail of the base. And then you come back and we're in your studio right now, and then you just begin painting? Well, no, I'll, uh, I'll go through a, a sketch period when, when I'll pull out all the photographs and, and look at them and, and refer to them and put the mountain together. It's, it's a big puzzle, which I really enjoy. Lots of slopes are, are facing away from the view, so I'm, I need to figure out how I manipulate this mountain in a very realistic way so that all the slopes can be seen on one dimension. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll work out this sketch. I'll do a very comprehensive sketch, and that is sent to the client. The client will make alterations to it or approve it, and from that I'll project that image right directly onto the painting surface and then paint the image. Mm -hmm. And once it's painted, it'll be sent again to the client for the final approval. How accurate are the trees? The trees are very accurate. Uh, I had a fear early on that some skier might ski into a tree, look on the map and say, hey, that wasn't there. So, uh, you know, the, the nation was so happy. So, that's, so I've, I've been very careful where I place trees. Do you think of your maps as pieces of art? I used to think of them more as maps, but towards 15 years ago onward, I really felt that they were more art than map because I'm really uh, manipulating a lot of the image to get it into one view and, and playing with a color. It sounds like this career has been one that's brought you a lot of fulfillment. <clears throat> when I first started doing this, I was looking for a job. I was looking for a a way to make a living. And as I got into it and really got to know the industry and the people in it and the skiers, it became a real passion. Whenever I paint a trail map, I paint it for the skier, not for the 
resort. And I'll sometimes resist what the resort wants to do because I see the beauty of it and, and I want to keep it real and something that they can relate to and trust. What do you think these maps mean to skiers? Well, I hope, and I get the feedback that skiers will come down and open up the trail maps and over a beer they'll uh, talk about their day, you know, and what spills they took or what thrills they had. And uh, it, it just uh, is so gratifying to know that they're looking at my art and reflecting on their skiing. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. James Nehus is the artist behind hundreds of ski trail maps around the world. His book, The Man Behind the Maps, features a collection of his work. You can see photos and some of his illustrations at our website, KUNC.org. Now, if you're more into the art of film than, say, the art of the ski map, a new film that explores the emotions and intelligence of trees might be more your speed. The Hidden Life of Trees dives deep on tree biology, and for KUNC film critic Howie Mofshevitz, who teaches film at CU Denver, it's an astonishing film from start to finish. For most of Peter Wolben's The Hidden Life of Trees, I sat with my jaw dropped and thought, who knew? I never knew that a forest of spruce trees might be one organism, that trees might talk to each other, that the mushrooms growing under trees might be part of a community with those trees, or that if you want a good, healthy, diverse forest after an old one's been clear-cut for timber, don't replant, just leave it alone. The movie The Hidden Life of Trees is chock-full of mind-blowing information about trees, but as good documentaries should do, this one takes you well beyond its surface. Here's a bit of narration on the canniness of trees. Whereas conifers send their seeds into the world at least once a year, deciduous trees have a completely different strategy. Before they bloom, they agree among themselves. Should we go for it next spring? Or would it be better to hold off for a year or two? Trees in the forest prefer to bloom at once so that the genes of many individual trees can be well mixed. The movie centers on German writer and forester Peter Wolben, who in 2015 published his famous book, The Hidden Life of Trees. The film shows him in a forest talking to Korean students, in a classroom lecturing on aspects of tree life, or recording thoughts and pictures of trees on his phone. Walbin is German, but the film travels with him to Canada's Vancouver Island, where he talks to native people about their connection to the forest, and to Sweden, where he shows students the oldest tree in the world. Old Tico is more than 9,500 years old, but Walbin's lesson about the tree is that its root system is what's kept the organism going all these years. Its trunk is much younger, and it's surrounded by shrubbery, which is part of the tree. The roots put out all this growth, and the tree stays alive. Trees feel pain and react to parasites like the spruce bark beetle. A healthy tree with enough water defends itself against the beetle by emitting chemicals that repel the animal. Oak trees collude about when to drop their acorns. In German forests, wild boar, for instance, eat up all the acorns. But the trees cahoot with each other not to drop acorns every year, so that the boar won't rely on acorns for reliable sustenance. I'm always stunned by extreme slow-motion shots of things growing, leaves popping out of branches in the spring and slowly unfurling. Various fungi seem to explode out of the ground, and it's miraculous to watch as the shapes and colors appear. 
Fungi, I now know, contain substances found in no other plants, which makes fungi unique beings on the earth. The fungi form webs of mycelium, which helps trees communicate and filter out bad stuff like heavy metals. The hidden life of trees reminds me of my octopus teacher, because it expands how we human beings look at other beings who share the world. We are not the only creatures with intelligence or the capacity for love. The tips of tree roots are like brains. They respond to sounds. Trees look out for each other, care for each other, and protect each other. And forests are alive and aware in ways people don't understand or respect. The hidden life of trees does not oppose logging. But it does argue for smarter logging that's better for forests and better for the logging business. Peter Waldman believes that if it's done properly, with respect for the forests, logging will be an important industry permanently, that it will not disappear in the next generation, as many loggers claim. And that goes to another essential in the hidden life of trees. Trees do not operate at the hasty pace of Internet-driven human society. Trees move slowly. They take their time. They pay attention to the long-term patterns of the earth, something we human types ought to respect and imitate. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mopshevitz. That's our show for today. With Aaron O'Toole, I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for joining us. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.